this was if you want to do audiobooks, grab your favorite book and a chair, sit in your closet and read out loud for four hours for six days in a row, and then decide if you want to do audiobooks, because that's what it is. Welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast. I'm Jackie Goddard, and I work with entrepreneurs, leaders, and speakers to make them excited about sharing their thoughts and ideas with an audience. The podcast allows me the privilege to speak with successful creatives, business owners, and thought leaders about the importance of creativity for their work and their life, as well as hearing about their unique journeys. I have been inspired, educated, and enthused by every person I've interviewed, and I hope you will be too. Enjoy. So welcome to Power to Speak, the podcast. And with me today is my fabulous guest, Richard Crossman. Richard is a voiceover artist, an actor, um, and an all-round creative being. I mean, Richard, tell us a little bit about what you do. In t- Well, let's start with the voiceover work that you do. I mean, we can see behind you that you've kind of got this spellbinding storytelling image and logo that's associated with your website. So so how do you do your voiceovers? Well, a lot of people, when they think of voiceover, think of Mel Blanc and the cartoons and um, Looney Tunes and the Hanna-Barbera crowd and all of that. And I mean, I just dated myself, but anyway. Um, and then, of course, all the modern cartoons like The Simpsons and, and some of those. But there's a lot more to voice acting than than simply doing cartoon voices. And I do a lot of what we call long form. So I do medical narration. I do documentary. I do corporate narration, corporate explainers. So a lot of it is storytelling. Um, just as an actor tells a story in terms of a character, I tell stories within the scripts that I'm given, whether it's how to operate a computer, how to operate a machine, um, how to unhook somebody from a medical machine, um, or whatever else they need me to, t- to do. And I simply tell the story. I find the story and then tell it. Wow. That's, I mean, that is, that is quite different to voice acting, isn't it? Mm. The, the voiceover work. So how did you start? How did you end up in that end of it? I mean, we'll get onto the medical, the whole medical <laughs> voiceover stuff in a, in a moment, because that's a, that's a whole other not technology, but a whole, you know, the technical side of, of the language is incredible in that side. But just how did you find yourself in voiceover work? Was it literally the voice or was it, did you come from the acting that you were doing? Uh, I have been an actor since I was three years old. Um, I was a principal actor at the age of three and uh, recited Twas the Night Before Christmas for mm-hmm. a uh, Christmas show. Um As I progressed through my career, I did a variety of things, comedy, um, Shakespeare, interactive historical theater, where I had to research a character and portray the character and people could ask questions or, um, you know, approach and we would have discussions um, right through to musical theater. And I spent 25 years on the opera stage. So I've ran a whole gamut of acting. Uh, As I got older, my knees started to go. Um, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is genetics. And I found it less easy to maneuver on stage and on set for camera work. So um, I'd always been interested in voiceover. 
and thought I would like to get involved in it, found the right door to get in, and discovered so much more than I thought was there, that I had any idea was there. Uh, and because of my teaching background and my acting background, I found that I migrated more towards the long form, um, um, even to nonfiction audiobooks. Um, I just, I enjoy that so much more than I do the video games and the, and the animation that most people are, think of immediately when they think of voice actors. Yeah. So when you obviously prefer the, the audio books, but I would imagine that's, that's quite a long process to actually narrate a book. It is, it is a long process and generally, um, rule of thumb once you've become sort of adept at it is that for every hour of finished reading it takes anywhere from three to six hours of work behind the scenes to get it in place so it's it's a process yeah what sort of books do you prefer I do a lot of, well, I don't do a whole lot. Uh, I've done a couple of nonfiction. Uh, both of them have been sort of self-help, self-evaluation. Um, the first one I did was Aging in Men, which I found very interesting and very appropriate. Um, <laughs> but it, it meant I had to do a little bit of research into the author because he had written other books. Um, and then read through and understand where he was going with each chapter and then start um, um, doing my preparation, figuring out where I was going to go with each chapter and how I was going to handle different things. And um, sometimes there are major turns within a paragraph or from one paragraph to another, and you have to be prepared to work with those. Uh, and then once it's recorded, it goes off to quality control. They match the script to the recording. They send it back and say, you've made these mistakes or these things have been left out or this has been turned backwards. So then that's done, and then it's returned to them for mastering, and uh, then it's it's published. But it's it's can be a long process. Yeah. And how do you approach it? Do you uh, approach it in the same way as a, a, an actor does a a character? I mean, obviously, you're talking about doing research and this stuff, which is all you know stuff that I did as an actor. Um, is it is it a similar process for you? In in that way, yes. Uh, and you do have to go through and analyze the script as you would an actor. Um, but because it's a much longer script and it's a monologue, basically, um, six and a half hour monologue, you have to approach it slightly differently from what you do on stage. And obviously, you don't have the body language and the facial expressions and all of that to work with to supplement your voice. You have to do it all with the voice. Yeah, and, and obviously different characters. So unlike being on, on stage in one character, you're taking on many characters. Uh, in, in a lot of the fiction books, that's the case. Uh, in nonfiction, not so much. Uh, nonfiction tends to be um, either first person or third person narrative. So you don't have all of the other characters chiming in and giving their conversations and their two bits worth and all of that stuff. Uh, so it's not as complicated. Um, my hats are off. All of my hats <sighs> are off to people like Jim Dale and Stephen Fry, who can create the 180-odd characters they needed for the Harry Potter series and mm. and uh, the Game of Thrones series and all of those. It's it's just an incredible, incredible piece of work to do that. Yeah. Do you, do you then chop it up into 
I'm just wondering how you approach the the whole. I mean, obviously you don't obviously you don't do it in one, but how how do you uh, segment it? Generally, what I try and do, depending on the length of chapters, I will try and do a chapter or two chapters a day. Um, but I don't generally record more than four hours because the voice starts to get tired. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I was told when I or was first getting into the voiceover business was if you want to do audiobooks, grab your favorite book and a chair, sit in your closet and read out loud for four hours for six days in a row, and then decide if you want to do audiobooks <laughs> because that's what it is. And I found I do enjoy it. Um, again, I, uh, nonfiction is my forte, similar to the long form narrations and things that I do. Uh, rather than all the character work, but I do enjoy it. Yeah. And as I say, chop it up into a chapter or two, or sometimes if it's a difficult thing, then you chop it up into even smaller segments within a chapter and work that until you're ready to move on. And then you, you know, you go from there. So. Yeah. And you'd record it all in your own studio. Yes. I have a home studio. Uh, it's four feet by six foot. It's about the size of a clothes closet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all sound treated um, so that I don't have a lot of background noises coming in and all of that stuff. Although I do occasionally get motorcycles going by the house. So we have to stop recording at that point, let them go through and do their thing. But, uh, but yeah, it's a sound treated room and uh, it works very, very well. So it's been professionally evaluated. So it, it works. Excellent. And do you have a a director or a producer or assistant, somebody helping you, or do you just literally sitting sit in your cupboard <laughs> reciting? It, it's just me sitting in my cupboard in most cases. Um, sometimes I will do what's called a directed session, uh, where the client wants to have a say in how things are done. Uh, usually, that's with corporate work or with documentary. And we will we will have a session whereby they come in by Zoom or some other online platform and direct me through the process of performing the script that they've given me, which happened in in August. I was doing a um, documentary on the Governor General's Horse Guards here in Canada. It was a history of the regiment. They've been in in um, in existence for 200 years. So I was. Uh, hired to, to to come in and read letters home from various periods of the history of the horse guards. Wow. Um, which was, was a lot of fun. And I got to use a number of the accents that I, and dialects that I work with. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. Have you always been a natural with the dialects? I have. Um, I, I grew up with grandparents and great grandparents from the British Isles. Uh, who spoke English and Scottish, different English accents and Scottish, and I picked them up as I was going. Um, but because I'm also a musician, music and language comes from the same part of the brain. So I've always had a facility with languages and with accents and dialects. It's It's been great, and it makes my life so much easier. Yeah, brilliant. Well, as, as, considering what you do, then yes, I would imagine it's 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 perfect. So let's let's go back and find out where did Richard come from. Let me let me sort of hone in to uh, what it was like growing up as a you know to to start acting at three. How did that happen? Tell us a little bit of, of background. I wish I knew. I don't even. I I I think I remember um, the performance, but I'm not positive. Uh, at three years old, you generally don't retain much. 
But my mother and my grandmother and my father always used to say, you know, that I had done this and that it was fabulous and I had gone right through. Uh, Mum always tells the story that she was sitting in the front row in case I stumbled, but she said, you didn't even look at me. You just kept going right straight through and had no problem. Um, so I, I really don't know where that came from. Um, none of my family are performers other than my, my mother's mother, who was, again, a musician, singer, and uh, church organist and pianist. And I followed a lot in her footsteps. Uh, she was also the person who started to teach me how to read from National Geographic's when I was about three or four years old. I loved the pictures and we would go through and, and do all of that. Um, but as far as the acting, it, it's just in my blood. I, I don't know where it came from other than to say that. So, And did you go to a drama school at any point? I did not. Um, I worked with a lot of wonderful directors uh, and I learned my, my stagecraft basically on stage and behind the camera. So... Yeah. Uh, I don't have a degree in, in acting or anything like that. It's all been doing the work. Yeah, yeah. And where, where did you grow up? Where, whereabouts were you? I grew up in a very small town of about 1,200 people called Caledonia, Ontario in Canada. Um, Scottish area of Canada and just about every place name in the town was Scottish. Uh, Argyle and Sutherland and Aberdeen and Inverness and all of those. Um, so I think that's a little bit of where I got my love of Scotland from, as well as my, my grandparents and great grandparents. Um, but it was a very old fashioned, very rural town. Um, acting was sort of way out there. You did other things first and becoming an actor was not even on the radar for 99.9% .9 of the people. And it wasn't on my radar for the longest time either. Um, I wanted to be a high school music teacher and went through and did all my music stuff and went to the first year of university. And fortunately, uh, they put us out on a two-week uh, practicum in November. And I was able to get into a high school that had a very well-known band and a very good band with a director that I had worked with as a singer and discovered very quickly that was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> Sometimes that's the best way, find what you don't want to do. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, and then it was a case of where do we go from here? And uh, I, I found other avenues and went on to other careers. And But acting was always in the background. No matter what I did, acting was always there. Performing was always there. Uh, whether I was singing, whether I was playing, I became a church organist at the age of 17, uh, church choir director at the age of 18, um, and uh, started singing professionally at the age of 10. So, Yeah. And what was that for? Uh, it was Canada's 100th anniversary, and I was hired by three different uh, local community organizations. I was known for my, for my work in the church. Uh, to sing at various events celebrating Canada's centenary. Excellent. And did you go on to do other professional singing after that? After that, yes, I did. Uh, I got into musical theatre and I got into uh, regional opera. And between those two, I must have been on stage for about 35 or 40 years in total. The, the costume design stuff. I mean, we got into a conversation before we, uh, when we, when we spoke before 
and obviously I I think we had the conversation that I come from a from fashion I started out as a fashion designer and then ended up going into costume moving across to theatre and then that's how I kind of thought oh my god I should have been acting years ago and ended up then going to drama school so how how was your your way into to doing the costume stuff you you do which is quite sort of one-on-one stuff yeah uh, most most of it is one-on-one um my mother was a seamstress and taught us all to sew um myself and my immediately younger sister cottoned to it very quickly my youngest sister hates it and still does and anytime she needs repair work done or sewing done i get it so <laughs> yeah it's the same with my sister <laughs> um but again it it it's in my blood it's part of the creativity that's in my blood um for canada's centenary in 1967 um I had made friends with one of the ladies in town who was who owned a fabric shop. And I went down to talk to her, helped get got her assistance to pick out the pattern and the fabrics that I needed within the budget I could afford. And without letting my mother know what I was doing, I created a um, unfortunate wasn't Canadian. It was an American revolutionary era costume, but I did it all by myself and wore it to one of the year, one or two of the events in the centenary year. Um, and then I have always sewn, did a little bit of my own clothing and that kind of thing. Uh, and when I got into theater in a big way, um, after I got into teaching, uh, I had more spare time than I did when I was working in the food service industry. Um, I was sitting, waiting for my part to happen in a rehearsal one night and wardrobe come up and said, anybody here know how to sew on a button? And it just sort of went from there. Once they found out I knew how to sew buttons and other things, and I was seconded to wardrobe whenever I had time. And, uh, one of the shows that I was involved in historically interactive, uh, discovered that I could do that, and I ended up creating costumes for them. I was the head of wardrobe for them for seven seasons, uh, and uh, ended up creating costumes for other characters, for vendors, and and uh, other um, staff members who were there, and it just sort of blossomed from there. And I've I've done hundreds of costumes over the years, and now I do a lot of Santa Claus and Mrs. Santa Claus outfits because. I have got that reputation now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always found out. Well, I I found out early on. Don't don't let them know that you can sew. Just, <laughs> just don't tell them. Mm. <laughs> when my daughter went through uh, school, obviously primary school, uh, they were always, you know, when it, whenever it came around to the Christmas show, it was like, oh, don't tell them. Just please don't tell them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing worse than being up till midnight trying to churn out like hundreds of, of pairs of whatever. I, I hear you. I had I had a about a, two weeks of that a couple of years ago just before COVID started. So I understand that one. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So how, how was COVID for you guys over in Canada? Uh, and how did it affect the work that you were doing? It sounds like you're, you're pretty self-sufficient, really. Uh, I am. Uh, in terms of the voiceover work, it worked out. The timing was absolutely perfect. Uh, I finished my home studio on Saturday, and the country shut down on Monday in March of 2020. Um, as far as the costume work and stuff goes, everything went 
out the window because you couldn't get anybody in for fittings. Uh, you couldn't go anywhere to pick up fabric. I could order it online, but to what point? Because there's nobody I can work for. So uh, that kind of went out the window, uh, along with a few other things. Certainly performing uh, live went out the window. Uh, my church organist position basically became non-existence for about six months until they got onto the idea and sort of finessed how they were going to do Zoom. And then I brought a, an electronic keyboard into my studio and worked from my studio. Uh, and, you know, it was basically the same here as it was everywhere else. It was, yeah. you know, shut down for a period of time and then open up and then shut down and then open up and then shut down. And yeah. Yeah. Has anything dramatically changed out of COVID for you? Uh, I guess maybe my self-sufficiency. <laughs> uh, I was always fairly independent anyway. Uh, I've been divorced for years. My children are grown, so there's just me to worry about. Um, but I learned how to um, become a little more self-sufficient, not having to rely on other people and so on. But the one thing that I did find about COVID was that I started meeting people online. Uh, I was introduced to a networking group over in the UK. And from there, it grew into five networking groups. And I'm there sometimes twice a month, sometimes three times a month in each of the groups. Yeah. Uh, networking with people. Um, I've probably gotten goodness, dozens of, of clients over there. And I think probably 60% of my clientele is now not in North America. It's elsewhere no. in the world. So, uh, and I had to pivot from in-person visits as Santa to virtual visits as Santa. And in 2020, I did 19 country visits. Wow. Or visits to 19 countries. So um, it, was, it was huge uh, in that way. And as a result, I now have friends in places I never dreamed of having friends. So, yeah, yeah. I know the feeling. I just I, obviously, I've I've met you in Canada. I've yeah. you know just out of out of um, that experience that we all had in in lockdown has kind of opened certainly mm -hmm. opened my world. Is that yeah. suddenly I'm I'm working with people all over the world, which is amazing, absolutely mm. amazing. But you were Santa in 19 countries. I can't believe that. I'm just going <laughs> to show. Let me show this. And then we can talk a little bit about you as Santa Claus. Now, you were telling me that you you first played Santa when you were seven years old, which, you know, I can't imagine you with a white beard back then. Well, we have we have a photograph, and I can't lay my hands on it right at the moment, but I do have one, uh, of the cotton wool beard and wig and very, very cheap Santa suit. Uh, at the age of seven or eight, we're not, not sure which, um, handing out Christmas gifts on Christmas morning. So I guess from the recitation of Twas the Night Before Christmas to handing out presents at seven, Santa also is in my blood. Yes. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that is amazing. But I suppose you're, in the, you're almost in the frozen north anyway, aren't you really? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm in, I'm in the, the southern, almost the southernmost frozen north of Canada, yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. But the, yeah, it sounds like Santa's in your blood. So did you have you sort of cultivated the look over the over the years? Uh, I didn't for the longest time. And then about 20 years ago, I started working a little bit towards it um, for two reasons. 
not only for Santa Claus, but I also get tapped um, for various festivals to portray the headmaster of a very famous wizarding school. Ooh, yes. yes. So uh, I get double work out of the uh, the beard and the hair. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that that there is your is the homepage of your website yep uh, richardcrossman.ca uh, um so is this is this dumbledore here that i can see in, in the image well there? technically i can't call him that because uh -huh. of copyright but he he is based on the headmaster of a very famous wizarding school yes and that that costume is actually uh, one that i created for the character um, and I've portrayed him, I would think, probably 150 or 200 times in the last 20 years or 25 so years. How does it work then? What do, what do people, people ask you to do? I mean, in, and what's I, the, the strangest situation you've been in? I basically go in and um, I have a, a setup. Uh, I have a, a big throne uh, and we do a photo op. Um, we have other paraphernalia, uh, school banners and that sort of thing. And I have a number of the, uh, the props from the show, replica props from the show. And we set up a, an area and it's basically a photo op for the, uh, for the kids and for a lot of adults too. Yeah. Uh, and then if we happen to be at an outdoor festival or something, I'll go wander around and I get stopped all the time for photographs. There are literally hundreds of thousands of photographs of, of me around the world in places I have no idea. So, so which one do you do? Do you do, um, do you do that sort of slight Irish lilt? Well, I generally have a, a, a British RP for, for Dumbledore, although I soften it up just slightly to what we call transatlantic. So it's not quite as, as heavy as BBC, but, uh, I have not yet worked in the Irish lilt, uh, which I'm playing with but haven't gotten it down yeah. to the point where I'm comfortable with it yet because it was Richard Harris wasn't it originally that yeah. and obviously just you could just hear the Irish yes. in his in his accent Michael Gambon I'm not quite so sure not not quite not so not sure. as much not yeah. as much and uh it, but he he definitely did give it a shot so we're not ending here, just taking a quick break to remind you that you are listening to Power to Speak, the podcast. And we'll be right back after we hear from our friend, fellow podcaster and teller of tantalising tales from the Storytelling with Puck podcast, Stefano Capacchione. The story I'll, I'll read for you. The Once with Three Little Girls. This is a dream that I think really shows how we view transformation. Dreams, emotions, empathy, connection, stories. Storytelling with Puck. Find your next tantalizing tale on your favorite podcast platform or at puckcreations.com forward slash storytelling with Puck podcast. The... Uh facility with RP comes from my mother's mother who was educated in a private school in England. So when she came over here and then I was born many years later, uh, I grew up around British RP and not what I would call Cockney, but uh, a more workaday English from, from North, Northeast of London. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. And then uh, I also have Scottish from a grandfather and Irish from a great uncle so <laughs> my accents are authentic. They're not put on.
Yeah, I, I have um I have a slight Irish and um Irish from my grandparents and North London. So yeah, mm. I'm definitely the north northeast ish. So yeah, I love accents though. I just love kind of just picking them up and yeah. playing with them. It's yeah, if, they're, they're fun. If I'm any if I'm anywhere with anybody speaking an a, an accent for a period of time, I just automatically pick it up and sometimes don't even realize I've done it. So. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so a lot of this that you're doing now, though, with these characters is virtual. Yes. So obviously, as Santa, there is a virtual Santa. So when do you start that? When do people start calling on you for for that? Well, I'm I'm back this year. I, the last couple of years, we we set it up so that I could do in person in photographic studios, um, and. I've been working with one of the photographers now for nine years and we had it set up so that Santa was six and a half feet behind where the kids were and the kids were just slightly off to one side so that when the photographer took the shot from an angle, it looked like we were much closer together. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the vast majority of my work was, was virtual. This yeah. year we're already starting to book in-person events. Um, so I'm hoping that we don't have another round of COVID. Um, but it's, it's just a lot of fun. And I, I send out a questionnaire when someone books my time for virtual, I send out a questionnaire, uh, you know, what are the kids' names? What are their pets? What are their favorite toys, books? What are the, how are they doing in school? What hobbies do they have? And over the course of a 10 or 15 minute call, I will work in a lot of that stuff. And, uh, I've, According to many parents, I have managed to buy them another year or two of Santa belief. <laughs> and sometimes the, the parents like it as much or more than the kids do. Yes. So, and then last, the last two years, uh, I had two families from the UK uh, ask me to uh, do virtual visits with their uh, senior relatives, grandparents, whatever. Uh, because they couldn't get out of the seniors' residences, obviously. So uh, Santa Claus paid a visit to them in the seniors' residences, and they had a wonderful time, and so did I. So that yeah. was kind of cool, too. Yeah. Um, and obviously, the, the picture I showed there, I assume you made this costume, too, did you? Yes, I did. Very nice. And what accent does your Santa have? Well, I have I have Santa, of course, for, for North America, and uh, I didn't send you the other two Santa Clauses that I have. Um, I, of course, have Father Christmas for the, for, uh, you know, the, um, the United Kingdom. And I also have um, a recent addition to my Santa work, uh, a character named Father Frost or Died Moroš. He is the Eastern European, Czech, Ukrainian parts of Russia Santa uh, who works in a costume that is blue and white and silver. And he takes along his granddaughter named Shnegorushka, uh, who is the one who brings the snow. Oh. So I don't do, I don't do a Russian or a Ukrainian accent, but uh, I have done a couple of appearances as uh, Father Frost. So that's been kind of cool too. Lovely. Well, as you say, the, the virtual side of things has, has opened up the world. To, yes. To yes. That, which is amazing. And um, but we have to touch on the whole medical voiceover because I just find it fascinating. I just imagine you sitting in your cupboard, uh, going through a, a magic medical manual, 
how did that how did that come about because I know you you enjoy that quite a lot don't you I mean and obviously the the jargon and the language is quite complicated so how did, how did that all come about well I've always again because of my music and my languages I've always had a facility with the English language as well and I find it far less difficult than most do to wrap my tongue around complicated words and to make them make sense. Um, my mother at one point thought I might end up being a lawyer, but I said, no, I'm going to fall asleep in the middle of the courtroom and miss something because sitting for a long time, listening to somebody drone on, I would have definitely fallen asleep. Um, but as a teacher, uh, I was up and about and moving and interacting with people all the time. Uh, and I think that too was part of it. And the fact that my grandmother started me reading from National Geographic at the age of four, I picked up again a facility with the English language. So it, I don't find it as difficult to, you know, um, ream, ream off words like papillomatosis and, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So how did that start, though? How how did somebody well, come to you? And... Again, I had no idea it existed when I started into voiceover. And as I was doing long-form narration and documentary and things like that, doing my training, one of my coaches said to me, have you ever thought about medical narration? And I said, what the heck is medical narration? So medical narration can be reading drug company reports. It can be reading medical studies. It can be um, an audio transcription of doctor's notes. It can be as simple as a radio commercial for a healthcare company or a drug or whatever. Uh, and they said, you know, you do have a facility. Give it a shot. So I signed up with a coach who specializes in medical narration and we had a ball for about six months and I eventually earned my certification as a medical narration specialist. And I have two uh, audio demos and two video demos uh, of my work on a separate website. They're also on, on the main website. But because medical narration is a different ballgame altogether, I have a site called YourMedicalNarration.com and it's a totally different branding. It's specifically for the medical work. So um, I work with that and I've done some, some really cool stuff with that too. Yeah. So how do, how do you set the tone then for, I mean, obviously you need to make it engaging. You don't want people to fall asleep while right. in, in the middle of all this kind of quite complicated language. How do you make it interesting? Well, again, it comes with uh, inflection. It comes with changes in pitch and in timber and in pace and in tempo. So rather than drolling on with something like this, you want to be able to change and make things more interesting and make people, oh, wait a minute, he just said something really interesting. I need to go back. And you certainly don't want to be doing something like this because they'll never pick it up. But you have to you vary and and work with work with things from those different aspects and it seems to work for me so and how how do you then tell story how do you get the storytelling into the, the normal voiceover work that you do if you are doing something that is is quite technical i mean obviously there the, there's the different inflection as you say and the and the tone yeah. and and all of those things how how do you how do you make it tell the story well, you, you have to kind of understand where, what it is you're talking about and where 
the script is going? Um, is it simply a description of something? Is it a how-to telling you how to go about doing something or how a machine operates or how a computer processes information or, 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 or. Once you've found that, then you can find the story and you can, away you go with it. So what advice would you give to somebody that wanted to get into voiceover work? Because I've, I've certainly worked with actors that would find it um, an added tool to their to their acting belt how, how would they go about getting into that well my first piece of advice is voiceover is a long game in 90 percent of cases um, if you happen to be um rest his soul a robin williams then it's not you you pick up and go if you happen to be a celebrity already in place chances are you'll do much much better much quicker but for the vast majority of people getting into voice acting, it is a long game. Um, most voice actors don't make a full-time living until between five and 10 years in the business. So that's the first thing. If you're thinking you're going to make a quick million, forget it. Turn that idea right out of your head. Secondly, be prepared to do a lot of training. Um, coming from the opera stage where I'm filling a venue of 2,400 to 5,000 people without a microphone to the point where I have a microphone right here five inches from my face and it's basically whispering in your ear took a lot of work to tone everything down. Um, as actors, we're used to using body language, we're used to using facial expressions, we're able to move around. You can't do that in a studio. No. You can to a degree. But you can't pace while you're trying to do a voiceover script. So you have to relearn your whole approach to, to voiceover or to, to acting for voiceover. Um, thirdly, be prepared to spend a pile of money for training and for equipment. Um, as a voice actor, you need to have, um, in, the, in the old days, most voice actors went into the studio, you did your work in the studio, you went home. COVID has changed that. If you do not have a home studio now, you are not going to get work unless you're in a major city like LA. It simply isn't going to happen. You have to have a home studio and you have to have the best equipment you can afford. I've gone through a progression of three microphones and I'm now up to a, a very expensive one, a Sennheiser 416, and I have a Rode NT1. I have two computer screens in my, in my, my studio so that I can have the recording on one screen, the script on the other screen. I have speakers, I have interfaces, I have software, uh, and that's just for the studio. Then you've got all your training and then you've got the website to develop and then you've got all of the uh, search engine optimization to, to worry about for your website and all your copy for your website. And that's all expense. And then your demos. You have to have a demo for every genre you want to perform in. I have political, commercial, uh, narration. <sighs> What's the other one? E-learning, audiobooks, and medical. I have seven demos right now. I have two more in process. I'm going to do promos and trailers or promos and movie trailers, and I'm going to do corporate explainers. So that will give me nine demos. And each one of those 
is in the thousands of dollars by the time you pay for the coaching and the production and you get your demo. So be prepared to spend the money. It's not something you're going to get into and make money, you know, within six weeks or eight weeks or even six months. Yeah. So it takes a while to get your money back too, I would imagine. It does. It's, yeah. it's an investment in time. Uh, it's an investment in money and you're going to, it's going to take a while. As I say, most voice actors don't turn full time unless they're really, really lucky. And I have a couple of friends who have been very fortunate. Um, but you're going to be five, six, seven years before you are able to make full-time money. And the vast majority of voice actors don't make more than 10,000 U.S. a year uh, until they're beyond 10 years. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's a long it's game. It's a long game. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank, you know, thanks for that, because there's so many people that just don't, they don't know that. They're not aware of that. So that's well, really COVID, COVID kind of shook up a lot of people. Um oh, I can get into voice acting and they bought the cheap mic that plugs into the you know, USB mic and all of that. And six months in realized that it wasn't going to be what they thought it was going to be. And now there's all kinds of secondhand equipment on the market. But a lot of it, most professional voice actors won't touch because yeah. it's it's not of the quality we need. So. No, no, I can imagine. I've got my trusty Blue Yeti. <laughs> 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 and that, that's wonderful for podcasting and stuff like that. But yeah. when you're doing voiceover, you've got to have a really high-end mic. Yeah. Yeah, well, you'll have to let me know which ones, and I'll put them in the sort of the show notes and mm -hmm. make sure that people know yeah. what, what you would um, recommend, which is great. Well, one, um, of the, one of the things about microphones is every single voice is different, and microphones react differently to different voices. So the best bet that you can have as a voice actor, aspiring voice actor, or even a voice actor who's been in who wants to upgrade, talk to your talk to colleagues, talk to people who are in the business. But the best bet is to go into a shop. Um, over here, we have Long and McQuaid um, is one of the big electronic um, warehouse type places and actually sit down and work with the mics and listen to what it makes your voice or how it makes your voice sound. The Sennheiser for me works perfectly for certain things. For other things, the NT1 is a better microphone for me. Um, it allows me a little bit more freedom of movement, which I need for audiobooks. But for other people, neither one of these mics might work. It might be something else that's out there. Um, there are all kinds of mic manufacturers. So the best bet is to go into a place where you've got a variety and actually sit down and listen yeah. and get the assistance of the people who know what they're doing in the, sh in the store or in the shop Yeah, and don't order offline <laughs> <laughs> unless you know exactly what it is you want. Don't order off Amazon in those places. Go, yeah. go to some place that know what they're talking about. Yes. We need to get people back into shops. Well, before I let you go, I must touch on the fact that apart from the costume design, the singing, the opera singing, the voiceover, the acting, the pastries, patissier, tell us a little bit about that. Well, again, it comes from my family. Um, my grandmother was a wonderful cook, wonderful baker. Uh, my mom loved to bake. My dad loved to cook. Uh, so it came by naturally. And one of the first jobs I had, other than teaching piano lessons at starting at the age of 13, uh, I picked up a job in a hamburger joint. And the fellow who owned the hamburger joint had also owned a, a, a more upscale restaurant at one point in his life and suggested I get, um, suggested I get some training for 
uh, for cooking after I discovered that I wasn't going to go through for the high school music teacher thing. So I went to George Brown, which is our local community college for chef training and culinary arts and did my training there and got into hotels and uh, private clubs and discovered when I was there that I really loved working with pastry. I loved doing banquet work. I hated doing dining room work because I'm a, an organized person. I like to know that at five o'clock this afternoon, I've got 600 people sitting down to dinner and this is the menu and bang, 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 bang. It's all done. It's all ready. It's, it's there ready to go. But to, I would rather feed 600 people in a banquet than I would feed 60 people in a dining room. It's just too frantic for me. My son is the other way around. Um, but in working with pastry, when working with hotels and, and private clubs, I discovered that pastry was my real love in the food business. So I studied that, uh, got into working with all sorts of pastries. Um, and then of course with pastry comes chocolate and comes sugar. And I took some courses in how to work with those and then ended up teaching at the secondary level for 20 years. And then the post post-secondary level back at George Brown again, for three years when I retired from high from secondary school teaching uh, in commercial baking and pastry arts. And I have, have had hundreds of students go through um, and take my courses over the years that I was there. But I taught everything from bread to chocolate sculpture. If you had a choice of any one of those occupations to, to see you out the rest of your days, what would you choose to do? I'm in it right now. Yes, I, th I thought so. <laughs> It doesn't require me being on my feet for 16 hours a day. It doesn't require um, the aching in the knees and the aching in the ankles with the arthritis that all of those years have caused. Um, so I, and I can come and go. I can do a script and then walk away. And I am so enjoying it. I'm a lifelong learner. And just about every script I do, I learn something. Yeah. So, perfect. and that's important to me. Yeah. Yep. Keeps, keeps the brain ticking over. Perfect. Yep. Yep. Perfect. So, so what's next? Uh, obviously we've got, we're in September, so we've got Christmas coming up. Obviously we're just about to go into October. Uh, so what's, what's on the agenda for the next couple of months? I would imagine you're going to be very busy. Well, I've got two Santa Claus outfits, uh, partially completed. Um, I, as I said, I've been getting over COVID for a week or so. So the fittings for the Santa Clauses have had to be delayed. And then I have a Mrs. Claus, uh, which is patterned. I need to cut and put that together uh, and have all of this stuff done by Thanksgiving weekend, our Thanksgiving here, which is uh, October the 10th. So I've only got a couple of weeks. Uh, and then we get into uh, networking for Santa Claus and all of that stuff. And then the second weekend of November starts the actual Santa Claus work where I'm back in the studio um, working with the photographer again and this particular photographer i love to death she works with kids who are uh who have social anxiety or who have uh, who are on the autism spectrum or neuroatypical kids um, so we don't book cattle call photo shoots it's 20 25 minutes at a crack and the kids can either, I have, a, I have a double wide bench. I don't have a chair. I have a double wide bench and we have a chair and a chair on either side. So if the kids want to sit on the chairs, they want to sit on the bench, they have want mom and dad in between or whatever, or they don't even want to come close. They just want to stand out front. Uh, they can do that. We, I tell them stories. I talk with them as, as I am able. Sometimes they won't want to talk. 
And the whole time that we're doing this, we're interacting, the photographers taking uh, portraits and they get some fantastic Christmas shots from it. Wow. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. And you do virtual video or, as well? Yeah, I do virtual virtual visits. Uh, I've just been approached by a charity again that I did last year. We did nine in a row on Christmas Eve last year. Uh, this year being Christmas Eve on a Saturday, we're doing it on the Friday. Um, and it's various, um, charity, various charity locations, uh, after school programs uh, in the Vancouver, Ontario, Vancouver, Canada area. Um, but I also do um, video greetings for individuals. We'll do a Christmas card, what I call a video Christmas card, uh, where you can do a Christmas greeting from you and your family. And if you want, we can include Santa Claus reading a story. And then once you have it, you can send it anywhere you want. And I do the same for companies and corporations. Um, and I found that those, those are very well received. And occasionally I get a call to do telephony for Santa Claus. Um, you know, ho, 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 you've reached John Smith's auto dealer. And just taking a moment out of my time, they're, up, they're uh, upgrading the sleigh and we'll be back out soon. But he wanted me to say hello and, and then they turn it over to the regular telephone yeah. answering system and whatever. Yeah. But, but I have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I can imagine you do. Perfect. So if anybody listening to this or watching this would like you to do something Santa for them in the coming months, how, how is the, what's the best way to find find you? Is it on the website? I have a website called Santa Dundas, D-U-N-D-A-S dot com. Ah. And that will take you directly to me and there's contact information and booking information and everything right there. Brilliant. I will put that in the thing below. This is the website that uh, is for everything else. Yes, uh, I have several domains, but they all dump into that one. So, yeah. So, Richard Crossman, all one word, dot CA. Fabulous. Um, and then, obviously, if you go to the website, that's what it looks like. Yep. Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely amazing to talk to you. I can't believe that you you have done so many different things in your life. Uh, I mean, I like to talk to creative people, but you, yeah, you're, you're kind of off the scale, really. <laughs> I, I often say that I was the original ADHD person and without knowing that I was, but um, I I am of the the mind, I don't want to be an expert in anything because that means everything else goes by the board. Uh, I want to be able to do a specific task or a specific set of tasks within a, within a skill set, And then I'm ready to move on and learn something else. And that's what I've done my entire life. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I'm a very creative person, but I have to keep moving at the same time. So it's been a, it's been a great run. Excellent. Oh, well, thank you very much for being here. It was a pleasure, Jackie. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then please leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're on. And if you'd like to receive information about future guests or would like to know more about Power to Speak coaching, then sign up for our fortnightly newsletter at powertospeak.co.uk. And remember, check out some tantalising tales and magical moments from Storytelling with Puck. Find them where you find your favourite podcasts. Or head over to puckcreations.com forward slash storytelling with puck podcast. Bye for now.